Hey Door of Hope, I am Rachel Tedeschi and I'm coming to you from our home in Vancouver, Washington and I'm going to be reading to you Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I think this is such a good reminder, especially in the COVID season that we're in. It's so easy when our life gets so stressful just to keep that to ourselves and just internalize. And I think it's such a good reminder that we need community as humans. We need community and it's our job to also be that community for other people. Life is so stressful when we don't have COVID, but especially when we do have COVID, it's just stressful. And so we need people in all of the phases of life that we go through. So I think that's just such a good reminder just to take the extra step, just shoot someone a text message, an email, a FaceTime, a Zoom. There's so many things you can do. So I think that's just such a good reminder and I hope you all had a very Merry Christmas and let's pray. Thank you, Lord, so much for just blessing us with just such an amazing community through Door of Hope. Just all the friends we've made and the community that we have and people that we know we can count on and rely on when things get hard, when things are happy, when everything's going smoothly, and when everything is falling apart. And I just pray that anyone in our community that needs a friend, needs someone to rely on, that they find that through Door of Hope, that we can be people that light up a room. We make people feel at ease. We make people feel that Door of Hope is their home. We are their home and they can just find grace and love through us. And we just pray for the health of all of our community members and that you are just with us through all of our walks of life. So Lord, we just thank you for all the blessings and happy birthday, Jesus. We love you so much. Amen. I hope you all had an amazing Christmas and we will see you soon. Bye. Hey everyone, it's Cameron. It's good to be with you. Um, just want to start with a story. Um, growing up where I did uh, in a town called Springdale, Arkansas, uh, there was this place that was sort of a magical land for kids of elementary school, middle school age, a place called CC's Pizza. And probably the chief thing you need to understand about CC's Pizza is that uh, the, the, the slogan, the, the, the commercial jingle they used was that this was pizza that was all that you could eat for $2.99. Uh, now before you spend too much time going down that rabbit hole of wondering exactly how it's even possible that uh, that could be the case, I, there are probably only disturbing answers at the end of that rabbit trail. Uh, the thing you gotta know is that this place was magic for kids. Like, I can think of so many times where me and my family, maybe a couple buddies, maybe a couple buddies' families, we would go. Uh, we would just get to eat to our heart's content. It, I mean, we're talking just gorging here. Uh, slice competitions were, were frequent. Uh, I remember, you know, <laughs> basically us making one another sick, trying to outdo one another, eat, who could eat more slices. You'd go, you'd leave. Leave your plate, go play some arcade games for a few minutes, go play Crazy Taxi or something, come back, slam a few more slices, get get it going with the salty side, and then they were always pulling out freshly every, every 30, 45 minutes dessert pizzas. Uh, I think there are four or five different dessert pizza options, so you could keep going, get that, get that sweet side engaged. Um, there was nothing better for, for 10-year-old Cam than, uh, than a trip to CeCe's Pizza with the family. Um, but there was, there was, uh, something sad that happened. I, I have this distinct memory of one day in high school, you know, 17 year old, 17 years old, maybe kind of on a whim thinking, man, you know what I should, you know what I should do? 
I should go to CC's. I should go get lunch at CC's by myself. And I remember going in and, you know, paying the guy, getting my, getting my tray. Uh, the prices had probably gone up some by that point, but um, I was like, all right, I'm here, I'm doing it. And the, the, <laughs> I think you know where this is going. Going to CC's by yourself uh, as a somewhat older person is not the ideal CC's pizza experience. I just remember like finding it kind of sad and like like myself kind of uh, I don't know just being in a funk the whole time I was there, and I realized something, like the magic of CC's Pizza was not merely the low prices uh, or or whatever, it was community. It was the fact that like these kids could get together and just goof off and eat and make games out of it and go play and come back and you know we're just laughing the whole time. Um, CC's Pizza alone as a high school kid uh, sapped completely all of the magic from it. And there are multiple things like this in our lives that, you know, things that are beautiful and wonderful and amazing uh, in community um, that whenever you'd go and you do it by yourself, like the, the, the thing is gone. The spark is gone. The magic is gone. You can probably think of some of those things right now for you, but um, they're there. Um, for today, it just feels like as we're closing out uh, 2020 uh, and we're all hoping for a better year in 2021, um, I wanted to, to, to revisit this idea um, of community. Uh, when you think about community, you could go a million different directions in the New Testament. It's chiefly, it's one of the main important themes of the New Testament itself. Uh, but I wanted to return to a text that I remember uh, working through back at Door of Hope Southeast um, a text from Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10. And um, we've had it read for you, uh, so it's hopefully fresh on your mind. But in, in, in Hebrews, we've been dealing with, or not we, but the, the author of Hebrews, for, for up through chapter 10 has been kind of casting this picture um, of, of the majesty of Jesus. And in the preceding chapters, right before our text in chapter 10, verse 24, the, the, the writer is giving kind of these lofty images of Jesus as this sort of true and greater high priest um, who brings us into the presence of God through his own blood. And then this presentation of the gospel. And then uh, they, we get to verse 24 and the few verses before, and he begins to turn to take all these big ideas and turn it into application. So, that, so now what? If all these amazing things are true about Jesus, what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Um, and the surprise is that for all this talk about the, the theological significance of who Jesus was and what his ministry accomplished and what his death and resurrection signify for us, um, where for so many of us, we begin to take an individualistic response to that. Therefore, I must do X, Y, Z, or I should respond A, B, C. Um, the author of Hebrews applies things communally. And, and the verbs that are in play are all these plural verbs um, to talk about you all and we all and the community. Um, and so we get to verse 24. And I just want to look first at the, the first half of verse 24, which says, in response to all of this beautiful stuff about Jesus, verse 24a, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And, and one thing we see here is that love and good works are inextricably tied up together. And this is a theme that seems to keep coming up again and again in the, the books that we've, we've been working through as a community. It was all over 1 John 
Uh, it was all over the book of Micah. Uh, here we have it again, that these things aren't pitted against one another, but love and action must go hand in hand. Genuine love for someone, of course it involves feelings. Of course it involves a disposition of the heart, but it validates itself. It shows itself to be real in action actual loving action it doesn't matter how many times you say you love someone if you speak other if you act otherwise if your actions speak otherwise the person's not going to believe you and i'm not sure that they should and that works the same way from jesus to us like jesus didn't merely declare his love for us though he did do that he acted decisively on the cross to demonstrate his love for us at just immeasurable cost to himself. And it's the same from us to Jesus as well. I mean, think of Jesus in John 14, 15. Jesus declared, if you love me, what? Not say it a bunch. (laughs) If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, he says. Our love for him is displayed in obedience to him. It's displayed in action. But, but that alone isn't what's so surprising about this passage. I hope that's not surprising for any of us right now. Um, in this passage, what's surprising is that the, the thing that is stirring up these love and these good works, it isn't Jesus, uh, at least in this text. It isn't the Holy Spirit in this text. It's not the right book. Um, it's not the right podcast or the right spiritual guru or whatever. Who is it? Who is it that's stirring up to, these, to this love and good works? It's one another. One another. And this is a major theme of the Bible's teaching about church. I, back at uh, Church in the Park, uh, back in September, when we had that, I, I, I did this. and I, we'll, we'll do it again. I hope to bring this up multiple times a year because I think it's good for us. But here's another reminder. About 60 times in the New Testament, uh, the authors use this Greek word, alelon, or sometimes eatois, uh, which mean one another and, and each other, respectively, to describe the life of the Christian community. So uh, there's these six, about 60 instances where you see this one another word used in the context of talking about the Christian life in Christian community in the church. And so I, I want to I just pause. Again, we've done this before. We're going to do it again. We will do this many times because we need to hear it. To read through these one another's. Just to re- remind ourselves of just the flavor, the character of what life in Christ's church is meant to be like between one to another, brother to sister. Here we go. These are in chronological order, beginning in Matthew, ending in Revelation. Be at peace with each other. Wash one another's feet. Love one another. 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 Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Live in harmony with one another. Love one another. Stop passing judgment on one another, to live in such harmony with one another. Accept one another, just as Christ accepted you. Instruct one another. Greet one another with a holy kiss. When you come together to eat, wait for each other. Have equal concern for each other. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Serve one another in love. Don't keep on biting and devouring each other. (laughs) 
not conceited, provoking and envying each other. Carry each other's burdens. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. Do not lie to each other. Bear with each other. Forgive whatever you may have against one another. Teach one another. Admonish one another. Make your love increase and overflow for each other. Love each other. Encourage each other. Encourage each other. Build each other up. Seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Encourage one another daily. Spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together. Encourage one another. Do not slander one another. Do not grumble against each other. Confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Love each other deeply. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each should use whatever gift to serve others. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Love one another. 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 The call that this lays out is for each of us to be the kinds of people that are opening up our schedules and our loyalties and our homes and our friendships and our time and our energy to others in the family of God. All those 60 things can't be done without availing ourselves to one another. And the other thing is that these things don't happen top down. These are not commands to the Christian professionals, to the pastors or the elders or the deacons or the Bible study leaders or the worship leaders or whatever else. This isn't something that's done by a special class of Christian that gets administered to the church from on high. No, this is peer to peer, member to member, brother to brother, sister to sister, sister to brother, brother to sister, one to another. It's the whole network of believers doing this for and to and with one another. And so we could sum all of this up by saying, if it is true that we are to stir up one another to love and good works, it's we could sum this up by saying that one of Jesus's primary avenues for providing love and nurturing and encouragement and instruction and support and change and conviction, all these things is the person under normal circumstances who's sitting right next to you. Maybe right now it's the person in the little Zoom square right next to you. It's the fellow member of the body of Christ, of your, even of your own local church. That person is Jesus's <laughs> significant part of Jesus's plan for shaping you into the person he desires you to be. All right, let's keep going. The next section uh, kind of, that's the main verb here. That's the main command here. It's to stir up one another. And now he provides kind of a sub point here. It says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. So, So clearly, What we have here is mentioned that in the days of the early church, 
you know, within the decades of Christ's ministry and death and resurrection and ascension, uh, we have people getting tired of doing church and doing life in the church together. Um, and this word for neglecting, it's an intense word in the New Testament. It, it only occurs about a dozen or so times, but it, it almost always means, uh, it can be translated forsaken or abandoning. Um, it usually involves the idea of willfully leaving one thing for another. So these people were making the choice to leave their church community and their responsibilities to the people, to the one anothering behind. Um, and clearly, uh, we have the same temptation today. This wasn't a, a temptation that was unique to the writer of Hebrews' day. It wasn't unique to the first century. We have the same temptation today. Why? Why are people tempted to forsake, to neglect, to abandon the meeting together, the being together? Well, I, I have at least four reasons. Many more we could talk about. I just want to talk about four in particular today. The first I would, would posit as one is because fantasy and idealism kill our love for real people. What do I mean by that? Well, I want to use a, an illustration here. Uh, I remember, uh, and I've used this illustration before for this, but I remember being so excited when I heard about the, the concept of the movie Boyhood. And that movie's director, Richard Linklater, is one of my, is probably my favorite filmmaker of all time, frankly. And I heard that he had this project where he had hired this cast and there was, the, the main character was going to be this little boy that he cast when he was like six years old, something like that. And the pr premise was that they were going to film once a year for a month or so, every year for 12 years to film like this boy and his family kind of coming of age and growing. And like, so this long form, like crazy investment. I don't know who put the money up for that. They're crazy. Um, and I thought, oh man, this is going to be beautiful. This is going to be amazing. This is going to be so transcendent. And I was so excited and I'd hear little updates over the years as the project was coming to completion. And then I remember it was getting released. And some of my friends, uh, actually from Door of Hope, we went and we saw it at Cinema 21 over on the, uh, on the west side um, downtown. And, and we were like, whoa, uh, it's happening. We settled into our seats, got had my popcorn, the movie starts, and I'm just so excited. I'm ready to be transformed and transported by this thing. And it ended. And I remember talking afterwards and, and all of us kind of going, yeah, I mean, that was really good. But you know, there was part of me that was like deeply disappointed in what I had seen because there was just no way for it to reach kind of the idealistic picture that I had built up in my mind. Well, truth be told, I ended up, you know, seeing it again when it came out, uh, when I was able to see it at home. And, uh, you know, I think on a second viewing, I decided, oh, actually, I think, I think this might be a masterpiece. I think this might be a perfect movie, which is, which is the opinion I hold now. I now believe that movie lived up to everything I wanted it to be. But, but in the moment, I just, I couldn't see it. I had let a fantasy or, or an idealized version of it sort of kill my ability to appreciate it when I first saw it. You know, a more sinister sort of example of this very thing is with pornography. What is pornography but this sort of, uh, to, to at least someone's eye, this heightened sort of sensationalized, idealized, uh, airbrushed version of sex and of intimacy and of uh, 
all the things that go along with it. Um, but the tragically, but of course it, it, it it's not real. Um, it, of course it's a performance. Of course, everything about it is manicured and manufactured towards someone's ideal image. And the tragedy of it is, is that this fake thing can often end up harming and displacing people's even desire for real intimacy with an actual spouse, with a flesh and blood <laughs> marriage partner. And tragically, we see that all the time. Uh, the fake, the, the, the thing that doesn't exist anywhere except on our screens and in our imaginations ends up displacing real people and real love and real intimacy. Um, and we do this with church. That's my point here. We do it in all kinds of things, but we, we certainly do it with church as well. It's, it's what happens when, when life with actual people doesn't live up to the fantasy that we've concocted in our minds. And I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. If you've ever read his book, The Screwtape Letters, it's, if you're not familiar with that book, it's, it's uh, written from the perspective of, of, of a demon sort of coaching his demon protege um, about how to be a better demon and how to tempt people and all that. So that's the, the perspective that's at play at this quote. But here's, here's what the, the, demon, the demon says. He says, when he gets to his pew and looks around him, he sees just that selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided. You want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbors. Make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people that next pew really contains. You might know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy's side. No matter. Your patient, thanks to our father below, is a fool. Provided that any of those neighbors sing out a tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. Put perhaps even more starkly is a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his amazing book, Life Together. Man, if you've never read Life Together, pick it up. Um, but Bonhoeffer says, Every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. What both of these thinkers are onto here is that, that when the idealistic version of church, when it gives way to real, sinful, broken people just shambling through community together, just trusting Jesus to save and to try to follow after him, it's going to be hard because it's not picture perfect. It will be good, <laughs> but some will be tempted to leave. When fantasy gives way to reality, some will bail. That's the first one. The second one is, second challenge, the second reason why people might give up and, and abandon the Christian community is because real diversity is stretching. Um, one of the most beautiful aspects, one of the most encouraging aspects for me of Jesus's vision for his church is this vision of incredible diversity, something we've been talking about 
uh, the past few months as well. But think of just Galatians 3.28, where in the body of Christ, quote, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. And in the modern West, certainly in a, in a progressive city like Portland, it's really easy to love this idea, at least intellectually. It is much more difficult to live it faithfully actual, in actual real life in our communities. Um, because with diversity comes diversity, ideally, of, of opinion and of vision and of view and of politics and of all kinds of things. Cultures are different. They ought to be different. We've talked about that too. We should celebrate those cultural differences. But when people from different cultural backgrounds, different preferences come into contact with one another, it can be a recipe for conflict. And I just think of Jesus himself modeling like how to navigate community like this when he chose his own disciples. When you think about the 12, the 12 disciples, the, the, those first 12 intimate inner circle that followed Jesus around, did you realize that included in that group was, was both Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector? So if you don't know much about those two professions, Simon the Zealot, um, that's, that signifies that he was likely one of the people who was passionately against the Roman occupation of Israel and desired a political revolution. His whole idea would have been to overthrow the Roman overlords to get independence for Israel once again. He was in effect likely a political revolutionary, willing to pick up the sword to achieve it. Sitting across from him is Matthew the tax collector. And this was a Jew who would have worked on behalf of the Roman government, uh, the occupying Roman government, we should say, to collect taxes from Jews. So this was one who was just complicit and actively aiding the Roman oppressors of the Jewish people, though he was a Jew himself. He was a traitor to the, in the eyes of most Jews. What were those dinner conversations like? What do you think? I would love to be a fly on that wall. I would love to be a fly on the wall as Jesus himself, the Lord in all his wisdom, tried to moderate and correct and smooth over like <laughs> the conflicts that were sure to arise there. And make no mistake, there were things about Simon in his zealousness that had to be conformed to the way of Jesus. And there were things about Matthew in his tax collectorness that had to be uh, set aside to follow Jesus. I suspect neither of those men were identifying as either of those things by the time their, uh, their ministry with Jesus was finished. Um, but here's the point. As Jesus continues to God willing <laughs> bring more and more diversity to Door of Hope Northeast, we hope for that. We pray for that. Across every kind of spectrum, each and every person here is going to be challenged um, and stretched in new ways uh, to make space at the table for one another, to come and to learn what it means to follow Jesus in every area of our lives together. And that will be uncomfortable and that will be hard, but it will be good. But some will be tempted to leave because again, real diversity is hard, but that's the vision for life in the kingdom and life in the church. Number three, another reason people bail 
or abandon the church or the church community is because real relationships are hard work. Um, relationships are often easiest when they're new. But real depth in relationship is what brings about disagreement. Um, if you are if we aren't experiencing any conflict in, in our relationships, it might be because we haven't grown them beyond the surface. Does that make sense? We're not gluttons for, <laughs> for conflict, but I do think it's true that if we never experience conflict with someone, it's probably because we haven't been honest enough or gotten deep enough to really see where our conflicts lie because uh, we're going to have disagreements and we're going to have conflicts about deep and significant things. I know even in my own marriage, uh, for me, when some of the times that seem most sort of easy and go with the flow are often the ones where I'm not really giving myself uh, in, with any depth, when I'm not really being vulnerable in, in a significant way. Uh, and that will, that will be made known sooner or later. Uh, and the peace that's there is often a false peace. Um, but, you know, many are tempted to quit when the sort of honeymoon stage ends in any relationship especially in the church. You get to a new church for the first time, like, oh, this is beautiful, everybody's amazing, the, this pastor is so brilliant, uh, the worship is amazing, and then the honeymoon ends and you start to see the flaws and the cracks and all the things that are disappointing and every church and every leader and every community has those things. But Jesus calls us to commit and to work through the same way he does to a marriage. Um, you know, Proverbs twenty seven seventeen uses the image of iron sharpening iron. Have you ever really thought about that? Like iron sharpening iron. What that means is two pieces of iron uh, to improve something, yes, uh, to make it more useful, to make it sharper, to make it better. Um, but what's actually happening is these two things rubbing against one another and sort of breaking down the brittle little particles and pieces to actually make the thing smooth and soft. It's a painful process. You get sharpened, it is painful, especially when it's at the hand of another person. But that's healthy, and that's what we're called to do. A fourth one I just want to mention in brief is uh, people bail on the church community because church community in the time of COVID is hard, <laughs> isn't it? Physical distancing from one another is painful and unnatural for Christians. It ought to be. Um, it, 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 what it does also is it removes the little reminders that we get when we're seeing each other at community group and in Sunday worship and all these things, that re, these little reminders and opportunities for connection that we take for granted. Oh, yeah, there's that person. I should reach out to them for coffee. Oh, man, I've been wanting to get to know them. I should call them. These things are taken from us. And online worship services and Zoom small group meetings, they're frankly, they're poor substitutes for what we're used to. They're better than nothing. They are absolutely better than nothing. And they are a grace of this unique time when we, <laughs> the unique time we find ourselves in for this pandemic, there are graces in these technologies, um, but they're still far from ideal. And pursuing people, staying connected with them so that we can actually stir up one another to love and good works in these circumstances takes a degree of sort of intentionality and discipline that we are not used to. I'm not used to it. I'll speak for myself. 
but we have to press in regardless. And just as a sidebar here, you know, this does raise the question whether of whether or not by working alongside sort of our, our state government and our neighbors to slow the spread of COVID, specifically by meeting for smaller gatherings as we did when we transitioned to house churches in the summer or foregoing sort of larger in-person worship gatherings at times. Um, that by doing these things, are we as a community violating the command of God here in Hebrews 10, 24 through 25? Um, it's, it's a fair question to ask. It's one that I hope every Christian has thought through and, and, and prayed over and um, considered. Um, but for myself and for the elders of our church, along with, from what I can tell, the majority of church leaders in our country, um, the answer is, is no. Um, for multiple reasons. I mean, small groups are a legitimate expression of church well attested to in the scriptures. Um, the, the unique nature of large worship service also makes it uniquely fertile ground for transmitting an airborne virus. And so we do really well to, to take that into consideration. And it's a blessing that we now know more about how the virus is spread and uh, we can adjust accordingly. And, and frankly, we're excited to have worship in the building uh, next Sunday uh, for those who feel comfortable attending. We believe it'll be safe, um, but we haven't always known <laughs> exactly to what degree um, and under what circumstances and with what things in place, it was safe to do so. Um, and, and another reason that the call to love our neighbors motivates us to act wisely and as self-sacrificially as we can. You know, in a couple of years, I'm assuming that we are going to know exactly what things we were uh, allowing and restricting that were helpful which things were unnecessarily burdensome, um, which things we just totally missed that were off our radar, that, oh, if we'd only done this, we could have made such headway in this pandemic, um, and on and on and on. Our questions will be answered, and we'll look like fools in some areas, and we'll look sharper in others. But I trust that decisions to set aside our own preferences and our rights for the good of our neighbors will be ones that we will never regret in 5, 10, or even 50 years from now. Um, regardless of, of what we discover after the fact. And so all that said, um, what I believe is that we can keep or violate Hebrews 10, 24 through 25, whether or not we are having worship gatherings in our building for a season. And you can keep or violate Hebrews 10, 24 through 25, whether you're part of the first group to worship back in the building with us, um, or whether you're part of the last group that feels comfortable coming to join with us. Everyone has different risk levels for themselves, uh, for their loved ones, for their jobs, um, and so on and so forth. And I want everyone to hear very clearly and directly that our elders trust you to prayerfully make the decision that's wisest for your own unique set of circumstances without a hint of pressure um, one way or the other before you're ready. I believe this is an area of Christian freedom, Christian prudence, Christian wisdom, um, prayerfully guided by the Spirit. But regardless, what we have to all call one another to in this strange, weird day that we're in is to whatever our amount of physical distance that our circumstances require, to refuse to abandon one another, but instead to do the opposite, which is what we're going to read in the rest 
the rest of the verse here, verse 25b. It says, not neglecting the assembling together, verse 25b, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The writer returns to the same idea. Don't give up, but commit to one another. He says the opposite of neglecting our assembling together is encouraging one another. He says to make the hard and the good choice to take up life together and to encourage one another onward in our pursuit of Jesus, even when it's difficult, even when it's uncomfortable, even when you've got Zoom fatigue or whatever else. Embrace Jesus' means of growing and shaping you in him, which is his people. At least that's a big part of it. And again, to encourage one another or to do any of these one another's that we mentioned earlier, it requires something that you can't fake. It requires proximity and it requires time and it requires intentionality. And we cannot, we have to get close enough, be available enough, spend enough time to do this with any sincerity. And that's hard in COVID especially. It's hard in normal circumstances. It's incredibly, excruciatingly hard under these circumstances. But my plea to you right now is to take every single opportunity that you can. And, and I say that regardless of whether or not you're ready to attend our first Sunday worship gatherings at the Fremont building, can you commit to a small group? Even just one that meets over Zoom. Uh, will you join in on the book clubs that we're going to launch next month as we try to dig into some just soul-filling theology together? Uh, will you band together with a few people to, to serve with Know Me Now or something like Portland Rescue Mission or Faithful Friends or whatever? Would you be able to pick just a few people and say, you know what, I'm going to commit to calling them regularly, maybe weekly, maybe daily for some, I don't know. And I'm going to check in. I'm going to, I'm going to just make sure that they're doing okay. I'm going to figure out how I can pray for them, and I'm going to pray with and for them in that moment. Uh, maybe you could try to memorize scripture with someone or say, hey, let's read through a particular section of scripture. Let's read the Bible in a year. Let's read the New Testament in three months. Let's, whatever it might be. Whatever it looks like in the middle of a global pandemic, will you commit to stirring up one another to love and to good works? To stirring up one another to life with Christ and all that ought to flow out of it. That's the question. That's the call for us. As we step out of 2020 and into 2021, may that be the heartbeat of our community. Whatever it looks like a month from now, whatever it looks like six months from now, whatever it looks like five years from now, may this be part of the deep longing and deep practice of Door of Hope Northeast to be a people who do this, motivated by the grace of Christ, motivated by the love of Christ, and motivated by love for one another. So my prayer is that we will be a community in this upcoming year that, that doggedly refuses to give up on one another. And it's going to look different, but I pray that it's the case nonetheless. Amen? Amen. Well, I'm going to pray, and I'll close our time together. Father God, we love you. And... Um, 
Lord, we just confess this is all so difficult. I don't think any of us would have imagined a year ago that this is what life would have looked like for the last nine months, but here we are. And yet your commands don't change, Lord. Uh, We pray that you would give us wisdom. We pray that you would give us energy. We pray that you would give us just a fresh wind to pursue your commands, pursue you and pursue one another with just wholeheartedness, Lord. Um, Lord, the the call here is lofty. And it's a a needed reminder, Lord, that um, your, your design for your people is to be intimately together, intimately spurring one another on towards you. So Lord, whatever it looks like, we pray for faithfulness in this area. Give us as a community faithfulness. Give all of your people across the globe faithfulness in this way. But we pray it for us specifically too, Lord, because we need it. So give it to us, Father. Um, Help clear out whatever debris is in the way of that in our lives and in our hearts. Um, Help us be the kind of people who don't neglect one another, but, but commit. Commit to stirring up these things. For your glory and for our neighbor's good. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I love you all. Um, We'll see you soon. We'll see some of you in person next week. Take care.